Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, everyone is trying to predict what the next school year will look like. Are we asking too much of officials that have no idea where this pandemic is going to go? The Prime Minister being hit from all angles and all opposition in regard to the We Charity scandal. The third one for him. Will it change things? And the provincial government has made changes to long-term care in the province, hoping to inject more money and finally fix things. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Wading my way through a COVID-19 summer. I'm having a hard time managing both my hand sanitizer and sunscreen. Anyone else? Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping us on the air. It is another Scott Thompson home show. Thanks for joining us in the midst hump day of week number 18 since this all started. That's if you're counting March break. Uh, when I guess officially the Scott Thompson Home Show went on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on yourself, Facebook and Twitter. You'll also find the podcast edition of the commentary there. Hang on a sec. Listen, can you hear this? My, my son is now going back and listening to his intro, and he's blasting it so loud that I can hear it. I, can you get the? Thank you. I lead my wife. He's just closed the doors. Thanks. Welcome to uh, Castle Thompson. And uh, I think Kurt has taken this a little too far. All I can hear in the background is him doing the intro again. All right, enough of that. Let's stay focused. All right, uh, lots of uh, chatter about uh, what the school year will look like coming up this September. Uh, really hard to uh, come up with some sort of a plan when we really don't know where we are as far as the pandemic. Uh, it is sort of uh, come up with the options and then see which one falls into place. And uh, lots of concern and chatter, and you can understand this, with parents, kids, teachers, boards, the whole nine yards. Here's what the Premier had to say earlier this week on this issue. I want to see every child in Ontario back to school full-time this September. This is what we're working towards with the support of our medical officer of health and our local school boards, and I'm confident that we will get there. But we will not take unnecessary risk when it comes to our children, and that's why we have to continue planning for every possible scenario to keep our kids safe as they get back to school. All right, let's bring in Annie Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education. She is with us now. Annie, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. So, Annie, uh, here we are where we are, I guess, midsummer, uh, trying to figure out what the heck is going to happen come September. What are your thoughts? What are your concerns right now? Uh, here we are and where are we is a good way of putting it. I, yeah. my, the concerns are there is definitely a lack of clarity. You know, people have been going, why are we opening bars and not schools? That's a good sort of punchline. Um, it is, I think, it's important to know school boards all across the province. There are people in those school boards working very, very hard to develop a whole range of plans. The biggest thing they know, I think, is that they have to be ready for anything. 
their educators and support staff have to be ready for anything. They may start out the year on whatever date, we don't even know that, and then suddenly have to change, you know, a week later. I was just looking at news about Tokyo, um, which has suddenly gone into red alert and shut things down. And that's only because we have 200 cases. So in the places where they're being sane about this, the minute the numbers go up, things shut down again. So I think that we all kind of wish that the province was being a little bit uh, clearer about what they're looking for from boards. Um, there, there's a lot of messaging in the media. The uh, premier yesterday saying, I don't want to hear about school boards planning for two days on, one day off for the schools to be cleaned. That's not going to work. But school boards haven't been told that officially. Um, and so that they're, they're, you know, they're trying to make a plan. I, I listened to the minister yesterday who talked about they were working closely with medical experts. And our issue as an organization, along with other people like the Ontario Human Rights Commission and directors of education, is that they're not actually working closely with educational experts or others, and that we think there should be a task force or a partnership table where everybody's working together so that we're not dealing with people making plans in isolation. So we've got the teachers there, the directors of education there, superintendents, support staff, principals, um, you know, student organization, people from faculties of education, municipalities, which have a role because of childcare, all together at one table going, okay, how are we going to make this work? And it is really worrying. The calls have been quite strong for that, that, um, that that's what's not happening because boards are also worried they're going to make a really great plan in isolation from everybody else. And then when they go to the other people who are part of this plan, educators in particular, they're going to go, nope, sorry, that doesn't work because of X or Y. And it's not because anybody's, you know, digging their heels in and being whatever, obstreperous. It's because you might not know, uh, about a particular area that where you know support staff need something in particular so that's kind of thing one sorry about my rant no (laughs) that's okay thing two two in this is that in the minister of health the day before yesterday said you know when she talked about stage three she said this will continue for the foreseeable future the foreseeable future is a long time and we have to remember that stage three isn't just like yippee everything's back to normal Stage three is still wearing masks, staying six feet apart, you know, washing our hands, all of those things. So stage three doesn't mean schools can go back to the way they were. There still has to be all the physical distancing, which probably means that kids are going to be doing some of their learning online, which means the other big problem that is not being paid attention to is the fact that That's not sustainable, that for lots and lots of families, they cannot support their kids at home. Childcare is part of that, but it's the 8 to 18-year-olds that we have to be worried about. And there, we think there's a role for the federal government, that they could be, that they've been having some problems lately. This gives them a way around it. (laughs) They Hmm. can't intervene in education, but they can provide supports for young people we could have municipalities opening community centers and libraries and have child and youth workers there so that kids have somewhere to go every day where there are supports. They're not necessarily teachers there, and they're being taught by teachers online. So we got a family issue and a lack of clarity issue. 
Um, uh, can we have clarity during a pandemic? Well, we can have more, and I think that that clarity... Because, you know, like from what yeah. I understand, they, they've sort of come up with three various options. Nobody yeah. knows exactly what's going to happen. But here's what my fear is, Annie, and my concern, and we've talked about this many, many times, is what we're starting to see now is that great chasm, that divide between uh, teachers' unions and governments again. And yeah. I, I'm really thinking that parents have had enough of this and that post-COVID-19... Uh, I don't think people have the time for this anymore. I think people expected more and they, they want to see this. They want to see a, a consistent solution. And, you know, all I'm starting to hear now as we sort of wind down through week 18 is, you know, there is no plan. There is no this. There is no yeah. that. And, 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 you know, uh, I think parents have just had enough of that. They want to see unity. And, 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 and I think that's on the side of the government and on the side of the teachers' unions and, I, and work together the way we have during a pandemic. But you know what? I think it's in this case, and normally I'm not like this, it's 100% on the side of the government because all they have to do is go, let's all meet together. And they're not right. doing that. And they so the teachers can call for it. Directors like a lot of us have been calling for this and the government isn't making it happen because and I am totally worried, too. Like you're right about your worry, because what's going to happen then? Because so much of this is happening just in the media with like new announcements every day is then people will dig their heels in. Then people are going to react. They're going to get defensive. We're going to go back to that kind of polarized fight because everybody's going to have to compromise to make this work. There are going to have to be like there's going to have to be lots of flexibility on everybody's parts. But if you do it this way, just by announcing stuff rather than going, we'll bring you all to the table. Let's work this through. That's when people go, well, I'm not going to compromise then. And you're right. Then people are going to get really pissed off and nobody's going to win. Uh, but the, the yeah. I mean, it's frustrating because other in other parts of education, people have been planning for months, knowing that this is, you know, something's going to happen in the fall. It really, really seems as if um, that the, the the hybrid scenario, the one where some of learning is going to happen online is what we're going to end up with. And um, but we we can't make this work unless everybody's sitting at a table together. It just and you're you're really right. We're going to end up back in some kind of horrible, cranky mess. And we everybody already just lived through. I, I shouldn't call it that. Sorry. I know <laughs> you're saying. I know you're saying. That already. Um. Do you do you think that uh, and again, Annie, I'm just working on my own personal experience, a, a child in elementary uh, and secondary just graduated and we saw a lot of inconsistency. We saw teachers that were just banging it out of the park mm-hmm. and then others that were literally doing nothing, even within the same school system, even within the same grade. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where parents expected more, uh, expected more from 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 teachers and whether that's the boards that's the government whether that's the union i'm not sure um now uh with our youngest who's going into grade eight 
because between rotating strikes and COVID-19, he didn't spend much time in school. We've uh, put him into the optional summer school uh, mm-hmm. plan, which he's halfway through right now. And Annie, it is night and day. What he is going through now and, you know, sits with a laptop there and the teacher and the various little boxes where all the kids are, uh, an ongoing discussion. It is 10 times better what it was than what it was when we were trying to just get the cool, the, mm-hmm. the kids through this in the end of the school year. So I am optimistic that there is a way of doing this, but I'm not sure everybody's on board. I, and you're right. And I think both things are right. To be optimistic is totally correct. A lot of people were figuring it out as they went. Um, and yeah. there were definitely were problems. I think the other thing that is, you know, may cause some tension is that much more of it's going to be prescribed. There is going to be more it has to work like this. So to your point about how there were huge differences, even in one school, um, that I assume will be much less likely now because now we're going into, again, the foreseeable future. It's not an emergency. We're not cobbling it together. But again, that's going to take a lot of negotiating to make sure it works that way. And especially hearing from, you know, the teacher of your son, how does this work? What's working best? How did you plan it this way? Um, so that we, you know, that that learning should be happening. But it would be really helpful if the teachers were sitting with the directors and the principals and the, you know, support staff people together going. And, you know, I'm just going to keep using your son as an example. How do we make beautiful programs like this? Because mm-hmm. part of the learning is going to have to be online. And for me, then the next thing is, how do we make a beautiful program like this? And make it so that your son, who's in grade eight, so totally capable, can go to the local library and actually learn in this for the same length of time he'd be in school so that his parents can go to work. Um, Is it? Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Is it asking too much for teachers to be in front of a screen, in front of a class for, say, six hours a day? Oh, you know. how. I mean, just as if you're in the classroom, except you set up the laptop. No, it's it's not, but it's like that. It's you know, it's it's not as simple as that. No, it's not asking too much. I mean, teachers are. I think for the most part, teachers were doing. They were all talking about. You know, they were actually working longer hours. They were trying to cobble together things. It doesn't work the same way, though. So, I mean, I think all of us have learned in the last four months or eternity, whatever whatever it's been. Um, that actually the work you do together online, it's not just the same as I'll just turn on my camera and it'll be all. I mean, you know, I'm working with staff that are all somewhere else. So it's the same with students. So there's a lot of a lot of different components have to go into it because for one thing, there has to be interaction. So like in universities, some professors, um, you know, they are just turning on the camera and lecturing for an hour. Well, if I'm a grade eight boy or girl, I'm going to go, yeah, right. I'm going to listen for, you know, the first 20 minutes, maybe. So there's a lot of adjusting that has to be done and learning, but it's not impossible. And we have to do it. Like there's, there's no choice now. Now Exactly. There is no choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. There's, there's definitely no choice. And it's alternately incredibly depressing. And then, okay, we're all in this together. I mean, I was talking to my husband about it and he said, we have to think of it as like a war and that it needs that kind of you know, it's that that kind of thinking where we and that's why we need all levels of government, too, because municipalities can be part of this um, because they provide a lot of different services, local services. Um, but we have to have a way to orchestrate that, too. 
I don't know. I'd just be a lot happier if we kept the politics out of it and it didn't go back to where it was. I mean, life after COVID-19 is different in every single aspect. Yeah. And I believe that's the same with the, uh, you know, uh, the dance we all go through every two or three years when it becomes contract time. And, and yeah. I'm, 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 you know, from what I'm hearing anecdotally, uh, you know, parents have had enough of this. It's a different world now and everybody has had to do more and we're waiting for the same from our teachers. And I don't think it's the teachers per se. I think it's the ongoing conflict between the teachers unions and the government of the day. And that's mm-hmm. got to stop. But I do really, truly think, I mean, I have been watching the last two weeks, the numbers of announcements with no policy backing, with nothing else, just in, um, we're going to be in the press every day. And if I were, you know, in charge of the teachers, or if I were a director of education or the head of all the directors of education, I would be mighty angry by now because it, you, it's, they, nobody is forewarned, nobody's asked. These are experts we're talking about. So I think I totally Wait a second. Let me ask you this, Annie. Mm -hmm. If they are experts, why aren't they coming up with? If they are experts, why aren't they providing the plan for government? If they are experts, why aren't they why aren't they proposing their their three step plan similar to to what the government is? No, I just read the OSSDF reopening plan. It's twenty pages long, it's incredibly detailed, has online learning in it has, you know, no, no, they they are. But what's not happening is a conversation together. It's like, let's look at the research. Let's figure these things out. That's that's what's not happening. And it's and I mean, I I totally understand. Like, there's been too much politics on all sides. You're totally right. But right now, right now, the thing that should be happening, which would make a huge difference isn't happening and for whatever Mm. reason the government is refusing to do it and they've been asked by by everybody now like including the human rights commission it's like there needs to be a partnership table everybody's got to sit down and figure this out because it there needs to be a partnership uh, education table like there's a health table we'll certainly put that to the government annie kidder executive director people for education annie as always thank you so much for the time be well all right, we have uh, been talking about education and the kids and such and what school will like, uh, look like come September uh, when the kids finally do get back. Uh, the government has come up with three different options. Obviously, at this point, uh, pretty hard to uh, predict which one of these is going to be in place uh, two months out. Here's what the premier had to say on education at his news conference earlier on today. Well, the message to the the parents, uh, we're working every single day. The school boards are working every single day on coming up with uh, different scenarios. And we have the three different uh, scenarios. But uh, by the time uh, school opens, uh, we'll we'll have it down pat. But again, uh, I I just wish I could could see, you know, and that's crystal ball, what's going to happen in in two months down the road. All right, let's bring in Penny Pexman, Associate Vice President of Research, University of Calgary, on what we can do over the summer to keep the kids uh, at least some sort of razor sharpness to them. Uh, Penny, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So uh, in Ontario here, uh, the kids really didn't have much of a school year at all when you uh, figure in rotating strikes that our our education system was experiencing here and then uh, COVID-19. Now we're in the summer months and what has gone from loose is even more loose. Uh, How can we use this time to, in some way, keep the kids sharp? What's the lesson to be learned here? 
I think one of the key lessons is how much learning can happen outside of what we think of as, as traditional kind of um, academics or learning activities. So, um, you know, we, we I, I think traditionally think of play as just kind of frivolous and, and for fun, but um, I think it's important to remember that there's a whole lot of learning um, and healthy child development um, Health, there's mental health benefits that come from being able to engage in certain kinds of play activities. So, in other words, it's not, and, and I mean, I heard lots of parents talk about this, that, you know, they're not learning this, they're not learning that, and even when we got into the uh, latter uh, latter part of the year and, and a lot were forced to start e-learning, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, everybody was kind of flying by the seat of their pants just to complete the year. And, and I remember saying to to parents, this is not necessarily about the curriculum. This is a once-in-a-lifetime world crisis. Uh, is it not all about, well, not all about, but is a good part of this not about teaching the kids how to cope in a scenario like this? Is that not the lesson as opposed to the math uh, class they didn't get? Absolutely. So I think there's, um, I mean, one of the things that, that I think is difficult for parents is, you know, they have so many challenges at the moment, um, managing work, managing childcare. Um, and taking on responsibility for learning feels like, you know, just another obligation. But I think there's so much kids can learn from seeing how parents, um, you know, cope and, and learning about how to manage frustration, how to engage in some um, occasional fun and play because um, it's good for both children and from adults. And you're absolutely right. There's a whole lot of learning that can come from that. And really, when you think about it, as I said, I, I mean, and I've, I've heard many people talk about a warlike effort, which is going to be needed in order to get through this. We've seen that already with the loss of freedoms we've had over the last several months and, and such. But when you look back at this, uh, are you feel, do you feel that, that parents or even as a society, we may miss the point here? And that the lesson is exactly what you just said in learning how to cope with this. This is a life lesson more than an academic lesson. I think I think you're absolutely right. There's uh, there's there's a ton of learning that could come out of this in terms of you know how to regulate your emotions, how to entertain yourself, right? I think um, you know there's this challenge we have where the way our lives were before COVID, we thought no one should ever be bored, kids should never be bored, you know they should be scheduled and um, and learning how to deal with moments when you don't feel like you have anything to do. Um, and taking responsibility for that are really important lessons. I've often said this is the first crisis of a privileged generation. Um, it seems amazing how we cope, you know, during this pandemic, week one, two, three, four, how it changes around 10, 12, 13, and how we are now in the middle of, of week 18. And, and is that not signs of growth right there? We are learning to manage this in the long haul. This is the new normal, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think um, it's sometimes hard to see that growth because we're, you know, we're embroiled in the day-to-day. Um, we're dealing with whatever challenge has been thrown our way today. And it's we don't get many opportunities to kind of sit back and say, there are some things that have come from this, some benefits that have come from this. And those perhaps are things we want to hang on to um, going forward. 
Do you think we will? Uh, do you think the post, because again, we've heard how this affects every single industry, every single way of life. We're talking about uh, kids' development. We've all uh, heard that it's important that kids get back in school. They've been out too long as far as, as, far as the social uh, uh, development angle on all of this. Uh, as we move forward, are we going to learn those lessons? Are we going to realize that life is not the same and perhaps we're enjoying it, life that is, a bit smaller than it was before? One of the, I think we, well, there's potential for us to do that. One of my worries is that, that we won't because we'll, as I said, be more focused on, on the day to day. And so it may take some deliberate effort for us to sit back and say, you know, what are the things that we've um, developed in this time that changed in this time that we actually uh, think are worthwhile and we'd like to maintain going forward, maybe as replacements for the way we were um, leading our lives pre-COVID. So any tips for parents as we move through the summer? Uh, what are those obvious learning experiences that maybe we just can't see? I think one of the things um, that's useful for parents to know is is how much um, when things feel like play, um, kids are motivated and learn and engage. And so, um, you know, to the extent that we can make everyday things we have to do, whether it's um, you know, doing yard work or baking or um, doing errands, if there's ways we can make those things feel playful, um, I think there's, there's important learnings that will happen. Um, and I think there's activities that we just think of as being fun, like playing board games and, um, you know, making forts out of things that we find in the backyard that are actually... All of that requires cognitive skill. It does require cognitive skill. It requires planning, and um, it's engaging, and it helps kids develop focused attention. So I think, you know, it would be important for parents to give themselves credit for the the healthy aspects of development that will happen even from those um, activities that don't necessarily feel like they're learning activities. So they can learn as much in the park as they can in a classroom at this time. Absolutely, absolutely. And, And I think they're... Um, there's also, you know, lots of good evidence about just the benefits of, um, of being in nature, both for cognitive development, but also for mental health or physical health. And in our short Canadian summers, this is, this is the time to seize that opportunity. Talk a little bit about the mental health aspect of this and how we've certainly heard of late that the kids have to get back in school, not for the learning, but just for the, for the peer process. Yeah, social development is um, very peer-driven, I think, for most kids. Um, and so they are absolutely, that is, that is, I think, the biggest challenge, that they're just missing those opportunities to talk to other kids and learn about their experiences and share their perspectives um, and develop empathy and um, ways of kind of considering other people's points of view. Um, those things are hard to recreate when you're, when you're doing everything um, without the benefit of, of the formal education system. Um, and so I think that's probably the thing to focus on. If there's ways you can, um, you know, work with close family um, and, and try and have those interactions, they're not the same as, as peer-to-peer, but making sure that there's lots of opportunities to connect with other people, whether it's virtual um, or, you know, at a distance, I think will be beneficial. 
Penny Pexman has been with us, Associate Vice President, Research, University of Calgary. How can we help with the kids' development over the summer as a result of the pandemic? Penny, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. We've often said, you know, the lessons aren't necessarily always academic and in the classroom, especially during a crisis a, and the first of a privileged generation. We might be missing out on the biggest lesson of all, and that is the life lesson here. Perhaps it's time to teach empathy as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the block, uh, the NDP and the Conservatives are calling on the Prime Minister to testify when it comes to the We Charity scandal. Uh, A former ethics commissioner says that Trudeau's apology, too, shows that there is a fairly certain finding of a contravention. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek is with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I am, and nice to hear your voice again. Yeah, it's great to be back. Um, now, as far as the situation with the We Charity, I mean, from what I understand, a lot, although it is starting to come into question now, but a lot of political stripes have supported this charity. How big is this? Is it about uh, the charity getting this job unchallenged, or is this about another eth- ethics gaffe for the Prime Minister? I think it's both. Uh, I think these are both problems. Uh, you have to have, you know, make the correct decisions in terms of public policy and the implementation of policy. And so there's real questions. Why Why didn't you have the civil servants uh, do this job? This is what you expect them to do. Why do you have to go out to uh, this, uh, this charity uh, to do it? And, you know, there's a lot of questions about that. And, of course, the fact that uh, the prime minister's family uh, was, get, you know, had, was getting paid to work for this charity and uh, that's a, that's a real problem, and he certainly should have known that. Uh, I can't imagine he really didn't know that, but I mean, he really should have known that. And certainly, I mean, his his relatives should have known it when they're taking money that you know people are going to draw the line between themselves and and the, their son or their brother. And so, yeah, there there is a lot of bad judgment all around here, and uh, you know, it, so this is this is a big problem for him. Uh, he has a minority government. That's a big problem for him as well. So he doesn't have a majority to, to just you know, carry on. And if he has the opposition all lining up against him, putting a tremendous amount of pressure on him to, to do something, I don't think he's going to step down the way the bloc wants him to do. But uh, certainly, uh, a lot of pressure on him to appear before a House of Commons committee is, uh, is there. Um, so we'll just have to see where this goes. But this is a real big problem. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say about this. I made a mistake in not recusing myself immediately from the discussions, given uh, our family's history. And I'm sincerely sorry about not having done that. But when it came to this organization and this program, the involvement that I'd had in the past and that my family has uh, should have had me remove myself from those discussions. And I'm sorry that I didn't. All right. Uh, the, you know, there was a time when the prime minister wouldn't apologize. Now he is. Does that make it okay? How does that? How does? How does that sit with uh, the average Canadian? Well, I think it. it you know, that it, he has a style that uh, for dealing with his mistakes that that we see from from time to time that he doesn't double down. What he does is he apologizes, which is more the Canadian way. So people would, you know, in Canada would look well. Our prime minister, when he makes a mistake, 
uh, he he apologizes. He 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 asks our forgiveness. Uh, and then they, they in their mind though they're comparing him to the American president who just doubles down and says you know just argues his case even stronger, which is Canadians find really objectionable. So that that has worked in the past for uh, for Trudeau. Uh, he has the right style, but this is such a big issue though. I think uh, it's unclear whether it's going to work this particular time and whether he's got to really do something major other than just saying I apologize, I won't do it again and you can count on me never to make this mistake again, and let's move on. Uh, it's unclear whether this is really going to work at this point and that the, you know, the opposition is going to go against him. The problem is, is the opposition is not all that unified on what they, what they want to do. Uh, certainly uh, the, the big player right now we have to look at is the NDP. Do they, do they come out very strong against what he's done and, and demand some... Uh, you know, a very uh, a, a specific course of action. I think they've been sort of muted in what they want them to do. They, you know, they have pointed out there's a lot of contradictions, but they need to be take a stronger position. I think, uh, and of course, all of the parties have to worry about that they don't get in the position where they force the country into a general election. Because I, I would think the population would be very unhappy if we have to hmm. have a general election in the middle of this uh, pandemic. So what does this say about the prime minister, the fact that he didn't see this coming? He didn't realize this. I mean, he apologized, but he didn't say why he did it. Yeah, that's um, uh, well, yeah, it's it's we we can never really know what people knew or didn't know or what they were thinking. Uh, certainly what they were thinking, what their motivation are. But certainly we could look at what happened and say, is this does this seem to be the right thing to do or not, or the ethical thing to do or not. And I think we have to say, you know, you a government should know, certainly the prime minister should know, that, you know, to, fa- to give contracts to an organization, now it is a charity, if it was a private corporation, it'd be even worse, you know, I think. People would have much less tolerance of that. But it's a, a well-known private, ch- it's a well-known charity, so that helps, but the fact that he, his his brother and his mother were getting paid to you know to do things for this charity uh that that i think is he should have known that 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 was a real problem does and, it emphasize uh, that, that this would the, get him into a trap is this emphasized simply by the fact that this charity promotes volunteerism yeah well you can do that but the thing is the uh, you know one of the, one of the arguments is if you you expect most people are going to support a charity uh and and donate their time and efforts to the charity, but the fact is you don't you know when you look at it you should should chair how much should charities be be paying people who work for them, how, you know how much overhead is there, and we we have had a problem in charities in this country many charities you know we there have good causes many of us give money to these charities but many of us would be very surprised to see how much of that money goes to people's fees and salaries and how little of it actually goes for the purpose of the charity and this is this is this is the problem is that when people when the veil is pushed back and people see oh there's all sorts of people who are getting making money out of this charity then i think pe- people you know are a bit shocked about it why would staff not have spoke up because again this is an obvious conflict of interest why would the office not have spoken up or is this just another bad judgment call like blackface well 
Well, this is different. I mean, the blackface was something that was done a long time ago, so his staff couldn't have any voice about whether he did, whether he should have done that or not. But uh, you know, somebody. Yeah, I would think that somebody you need a sort of an ethics counselor at your right at your right hand saying, uh, "Mr. Prime Minister, uh, this is not the right thing to do. You're going to get into a lot of trouble. It doesn't look ethical to me. I think you ought to take a pass on this." And I don't. We what we don't know whether there's somebody like that who 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 told him that. Uh, but but he should have. I mean, every every great leader needs a person right next to him. That that essentially, basically, is keeping a watch that he doesn't make these type of mistakes. And uh, whether you know, so if they, if nobody in the staff did that, then it's a problem with the staffing. There's needed to be somebody who had some clout who'd say, "Mr. Prime Minister, you really, really shouldn't do this." Uh, is this? You talked about the importance of of this uh, the, the scandal around the We uh, charity. Is this as big as the SNC Lavalin Jody Wilson Raybould uh, fiasco? Well, I think they're a little bit. I, th- uh, I I think this is more important. Uh, the one about uh, what was going on was really a, a question about who runs the cabinet. Okay, so that that's part of it, and and I do do think that the uh, Raybould and and uh, and uh, her other friend in the cabinet who resigned with her, uh, Jane Philpott. You know, yeah, Philpott, were essentially going against a tradition that at the end of the day, the prime minister decides what goes on in the cabinet. And uh, you, you either, you either, if you don't like what's going on in the cabinet, you resign. Uh, and and that's, that's the way it goes. Um, and that you can't, you can't expect, you know, no minister can expect to to run their their ministry when when the cabinet and especially the prime minister doesn't like the way they're doing it. So that's that I think is an important principle there that was probably a lot of people might not pay attention to but that's an important part of our parliamentary government. This is and and also the fact that he was trying to save a Canadian and a Quebec corporation uh financially and protect and look like he was protecting Canadian jobs. Uh, that I think uh, was look, you know, was 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 probably something mm-hmm. he was able to navigate through. There wasn't any payoffs to him or his family from from as we as far as we could tell from uh, from uh, the company. So that I think was a, a little easier thing to go through, even though it was not very uh, you know pleasant for him. I'm sure. Uh, but th- this one is much harder to justify, I think. This is a much more dangerous situation. There we got family members who are, making mo- who are taking big fees from a charity. And, uh, you know, and his wife's involved, too, as well. I left her out before. So, yeah, that, that, uh, that, is, uh, that, that I think, is, is a much more serious problem. Uh, so now opposition asking for him to testify before a committee. Will we see that? That will all be, obviously be different than uh, the Jody Wilson-Raybould situation. Yeah, I, I think he's going to say, no, there's no way you can compel the prime minister or even M- any MP to testify before a committee if they don't want to. The only thing that ultimately that, that the opposition can do in a minority situation is essentially say, we no longer have... Uh, uh, trust in this government. We're not going to support this government as if the prime minister is still there. Uh, the B, the block said pretty clearly, well, we we could we won't vote against the government as long as Trudeau steps down and uh, you know the deputy prime minister takes over. Uh, 
so that's that's an interesting sort of position, and I don't think it's going to happen, but it's an interesting sort of position. But I don't think the opposition is going to want to be in a position where it's going to look like it's forcing an election, because then when the election occurs, they're going to have to you know convince Canadians that this that this particular scandal is more important than how Trudeau has dealt with the uh, with the with the pandemic that we've had, and I think that probably. You know that that's a risky situation. The conservatives have no permanent leader. The other parties are not at this point ready to take. Don't seem to have much of a chance of ever of forming the government. So that's that's a very messy situation. So it's going to be, I think, very difficult and very messy for the prime minister. I think he's going to have he's going to have a lot of you know uh, rotten tomatoes thrown at him, which he probably deserves. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, he's probably going to get through this. And will people remember this whenever we have the next election, which I think actually is going to be in the fall of 2021. But uh, that, that's what I'm betting on. Well, will they remember that a year from now? And plus the other things, I, I, I don't know. But I think he probably thinks if he can, if he can deal with the pandemic by that point, uh, no matter how bad he gets roughed up on this situation, that he'll probably be able to win the next election. But we'll have to see. Uh, only got a few seconds left. Is Christia Freeland a better option for the Liberals than Justin Trudeau? Uh, right now, I would say no. If I were a Liberal uh, advisor I, to the Liberal Party federally, I'd say I'd, I'd stick with Trudeau rather than changing to the Deputy Prime Minister. I think despite all the problems he's had, he's had such a good you know, support by the Canadian people. I think you got to go with the with the veteran who's a winner. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, enjoy talking to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, the Premier ho- holding his uh, daily news conference earlier on today and talked about uh, changes coming to long-term care. Here's what the Premier had to say on long-term care. The last few months, I made it crystal clear that when it comes to long-term care, we can't accept the status quo. Thanks to our frontline heroes, the vast majority of homes have now stabilized. But we have clearly seen the system is broken. And after decades of neglect and underinvestment, the cracks in the system can no longer be ignored. We're committed to building 30,000 long-term care beds over the next 10 years. And today, we're making a historic investment of $1.75 billion to kickstart the development of long-term care beds in Ontario. Today's announcement will result in an estimated nearly 8,000 new long-term care beds and 12,000 redeveloped long-term care beds. This is something that should have been done many years ago. And with thousands of new and redeveloped beds on the way, we're going to mandate air conditioning for all new long-term care projects and redevelopments. I am 100% committed to seeing this through. No longer will the seniors and the staff in our long-term care homes have to suffer through the summer heat.
uh, as well, uh, increasing the amount of visitors uh, or changing the visitor policy as uh, it has been in the past, uh, in, uh, raising that to two people uh, per visit. Uh, outside, if you're outside, uh, no reason for a test. If you're inside, uh, they still demand uh, that you do have a test. Uh, to talk more about all of this and uh, the changes that are being made to long-term care, let's bring in Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Advisor for the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, and is with us now. Marissa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. So your thoughts on what you heard uh, this afternoon and, and uh, more money being injected into long-term care? Sure. So I think generally it's a good announcement while still sort of providing you know necessary protections to still control the spread of COVID-19. It's really sort of about finding that balance, right? And I think given where we are, you know, we're making strides, we're making progress. We don't want to see a case where we go backwards. So I, I think that this is a, a measured response to sort of the positive impact um, that we're having on fighting COVID-19. We certainly know that this has been an ongoing issue, meaning long-term care and such, uh, for many years. Uh, how much work is there to do? How big an issue, how big a problem is this for the government of the day? Oh, it's a big problem. And by no means does today's announcement fix the system. Of course, you know, with this heat wave, AC units ought to be essential. They ought to be mandatory. And we know that they're not. Um, The minister did say that in long term care homes, they do have air conditioning, but a lot of the bedrooms don't. That's a problem is it's often in common areas where the AC units are. Um, but not in many of the bedrooms. And so, you know, the challenge is more than just going in and installing these things because a lot of them actually don't, a lot of the buildings can't even handle the the load of the power that would take. Um, And so this fund, I think, is is needed. Um, It's also, you know, unclear whether or not it's limited to long-term care homes or retirement homes. There are retirement homes that don't have air conditioning. So will they be able to get a portion of these dollars? That's unclear. Um, but I can say, you know, we have heard stories from people wanting to even install portable air conditioning units in bedrooms and, and, and homes saying, we just can't, we can't handle the load. So I think it's a bigger problem um, than just having a pool of funds ready and, and, and there to install these AC units. It's much bigger than that. Let's. Uh, can you add some clarity? Is because obviously we're talking about long-term care here, which is different from retirement or nursing homes, and it's also different private versus public. Can you can you uh-huh. sort of classify those for us to see what the options are? Sure. So it's a loaded question. So when we talk about long-term care, it's it's beca- it's it's essentially a synonym for nursing homes. Right. Um, and 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 those are homes that really are are meant to be providing 24-hour care where there's a nurse on staff at all times um, and residents are, um, uh, are, are, are able to receive some level of government-subsidized funding to meet those care needs, whereas retirement homes are the very expensive homes that we often hear about where, where you're being charged, you know, seven to $10,000 a month for a room and board. And what you can do is you can add on additional care needs as needed. Um, and so there may be some residents in, in retirement homes that do require extensive care, the kind of care that's provided in a long-term care home. Um, but that would be based on a contract that they would, des- that they would have with the retirement home. Um, and they would be paying extra and really out of pocket for those for those expenses. 
So, and uh, within the long-term care system, of course, yep. there are for-profit operators and not-for-profit operators and, and municipally run homes. So it's it's really um, sort of a mixed bag of what you what you can access. So all as well as having uh, private and public versions of retirement centers, there's private and public versions of long-term care or nursing homes as well. Uh, so retirement homes are private. Yeah. Privately run, and then long-term care homes. Yes, there are there are public as well as as private and and for-profit operators um, are still subject, are still able to receive government dollars, um, but then they're able to turn a profit as well. So um, this is an issue in regard to updating uh, current facilities, uh, building more, so there's more uh, beds available for those in the future. There's that discussion. There's also the discussion about regulations, some sort of common ground where all of these uh, centers, whether they're retirement or or long-term care or what have you, have some sort of standard uh, that they all have to adhere to. How close are we to that? I would say we're a ways away from yeah. from getting that. Um, certainly part of CARB's advocacy has been to advocate for national standards. And what we've said is that, you know, the level of care that you receive in these homes should not be dependent on your postal code, um, mm. that there really needs to be some level of national agreement on a standard of care, a minimum standard of care that needs to be provided in these homes, whether you live in Surrey, B.C. or Brampton, Ontario. Um, And so that would really require provinces and territories, as well as the federal government, coming together to sit down to figure out what that looks like. Um, But recognize, too, that when you raise the standards, there are often costs associated with that, hard costs. So if you're suddenly going from all that's required is that there be one RN on staff at all times to an actual ratio of staff to resident in terms of what's being provided. Maybe that's a mixed ratio. Maybe you have PSWs and and RNs and LPNs in order to meet the needs of residents. There is going to be a cost associated with that. And where are those dollars going to come from? Will they come strictly from the provinces and territories? Or does the government have a role to play? And in CARP's opinion, we think the government, uh, the federal government, the government of Canada has to come to the table on that one. Is the issue there about what's the province's responsibility and what the federal responsibility is? Are we getting caught in red tape here? Well, um, the problem is, is the Canada Health Act currently doesn't cover long-term care. So, of course, the administration of long-term care is provincial responsibility. It is provincial jurisdiction, and it would remain as such. Um, But is there a role for the federal government to play in terms of funding and in terms of providing leadership to establish national standards? I think yes, but it would also require potentially opening up the Canada Health Act or bringing long-term care under its own act, under federal government legislation. Uh, how do you feel about this announcement today? Obviously, it isn't the solution. Um, uh, are you happy it's moving in the right direction? Is it the right direction? Your thoughts? I do. I think it is the right direction. Certainly, uh, family members and, and family caregivers can be very happy to know that they'll be allowed back into these homes where previously visits were outdoors. Um, two people at a time is certainly better than one. Um, obviously, they'll have to continue to, to wear the full garb and the PPE, and that's, that must be very hot in this heat, but at least they're getting access to their loved ones mm. where they haven't been able to see them. The other thing that we've heard is that testing has been a real barrier, and previously someone had to show that they were COVID negative, um, 
and could only basically unlock access to two visits to see Mm -hmm. a family member. And now if they're outdoors, they don't have to do that. So I think easing restrictions while also maintaining that balance to make sure that we don't, you know, start to trend backwards. We want to make sure that there are still controls in place to control the spread of COVID-19. Marissa Lennox has been with us, Chief Policy Officer for the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, uh, talking about uh, the comments made earlier today by the Premier of Ontario and uh, more money for long-term care. Marissa, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.